It is my great privilege, really, to be here. I, I am widely and incorrectly supposed to know everything about the early church programs. My thesis only went up to the Depression. But I, I found myself primarily interested in the theological issues, the historical issues of the founding of this church and realized that it was, it was going on all over the nation. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, and of course, there are so many good history books now, the latest being Kathy Adams' um, 100th, 100th anniversary um, book, which I could never have produced. It's, it's an amazing compendium of photographs and stuff. But um, what I would like to do is to set the stage about Birmingham in the 20s. Now you realize that in 23, this city was not even, it was barely 50 years old. And of course it's famously known as the Magic City because it grew up like a mushroom overnight. And it was, it was located here by the engineers from Montgomery who got the railroads to converge because they knew that this valley was loaded with resources, coal, limestone, um, iron ore, everything, everything. They were all going to get filthy rich. Some of them did. Um, but it was, it was really boom time in the early years. So let me read you something from publication. Um, and Tom, Tom has read this too. I don't know where we found it. It was a 1912 article about the, um, it's called smelting of iron and civics. But it shows a part of Birmingham that was very real, but you don't read about it in the, in the you know, Magic City style histories. So bear with me while I do this here and switch glasses so I can see you and then see the print. Oh, and I, I reiterate, yes, please stop me, ask questions, tell your own stories. Uh, I will not make any random opinions today. Maybe. Um, but um, here we have 1912. Now, this is, to me, this is beautifully visual, so see it. From the one, from the oar-rimmed crest of the long iron hill, one can see the whole city stirring in the valley. There is first historic old Jonesboro, what is left of it, earliest of the pioneer log settlements of Jefferson County, then Bessemer, the city of furnaces, founded by Henry de Bartleben, the furnace towns and mining towns of Woodward, Wylam, Thomas, Pratt City, Powderly, and the, excuse me, I'm trying not to pop the mic, not very successfully, and the city of Ensley, where the giant brood of furnaces and the steel plant of the United States Steel Corporation strike high against the skyline. Then the new model city of Cory, Fairfield, most of you know, I'm sure, and the great wire mills and coke plants of the Steel Corporation, the little resident suburbs of Owenton, site of Owenton College, which is Birmingham Sullivan, became Birmingham Sullivan. West End, the old market town of Eloton, the first town of Jones Valley, the growing suburbs of North Birmingham, Norwood, Boyles, East Birmingham, North Highlands, South Highlands, the cotton mill town of Avondale, the little city of Woodlawn, once Wood Station, treading back to pioneer times, Gate City, site of the Republic Company's rolling mill, 
now dismantled. Yonder, all along the valley, they swing from left to right, clear to the resident suburbs of East Lake, the site of Howard College, the boys' industrial home, and the Catholic or orphanage, beyond to Roebuck Springs, and off into the coal fields, to many a mining camp, over the hills, and far away. So I thought that is the, the niftiest visual presentation of how the valley would have looked from the top of a mountain. Um, what I want to do now is run the slides. Most of these will show you conditions in Birmingham. Henry de Bordelaben famously said when he was, I think, in the business of founding the city of Bessemer, he didn't want any business to come into town that couldn't make smoke. <laughs> and boy, did they make smoke. So, uh, Catherine, are you armed to, uh, yeah. So I'm going to get out of the way here and let Is it working? No. Is it on yet? Brian said I sort of had to eat it to be heard. So, here we go. This is from a 1908 publication. Notice all the background behind the title of Birmingham. This was a wonderful thing, all this industry and all of this smoke. Okay, Catherine. This is downtown, early, early. I, Second Avenue, I believe. Wait a minute, I gotta get my own request. Y'all don't have this, you guys don't have this problem of needing two and three and four. Uh, this, this is Second Avenue North looking east from 18th Street. So you see how, how uh, minimally it was, um, it was settled at that time and how gloomy. Of course, granted, it's a snowy day in the winter. But all the same, it looks rather big. Okay, Catherine. Do you all recognize this one? Av Avondale Mills, only relatively recently destroyed. Uh, and boy, wouldn't the developers love to have that chunk of masonry now for apartments. Uh, doing, doing a little smoking there. Okay, Catherine. Can I add real quick? Yeah. So that was um, just down from Sloss on First Avenue North. Um, and. The housing for Avondale Mills would have been in North Avondale, and so the children we serve through Stair are um, oftentimes from the, the tenement, uh, the, the uh, public housing that was that replaced the. the uh, that Tom Brown. Yeah. yeah. Um, and here, here is the housing at the time. Um, I think Tom, didn't you find this one? Yeah. yeah you said. This hills half acre. Notorious uh, prostitution and um, uh, brothels and so forth, just short of Avondale Mills. Okay, go ahead, Catherine. Now, I threw this in for fun. Uh, do you recognize this, anybody? Since we're in Avondale, that that is looking south along 41st Street, originally Spring Street. I remember the drugstore building on the left. It was torn down, and now there's an Esso or Exxon, whatever it is. And of course, all of those houses on the other side of the street are gone. 
but this is very near the mill. Okay, this is along 6th Avenue South between 34th and 35th, so this is uh, West Avondale, but you get the general sense of scragliness and desertion and, and just poverty, really. Okay, this is Sipsy. Uh, there, there are a lot of photographs from the Sipsy of vines, um, and, but I thought this was a very good representation of how most industrial housing was. Okay, go ahead. This, believe it or not, is from 1939 on Southside. Uh, it is somewhere now, I think, in the vicinity of Man where Magnolia Park was, or I mean, still is. But um, if you look very, very carefully, you can see the four towers of Quinlan Castle um, in the way back. So that sort of locates it for you, but as late as 1929, this, this, these conditions still prevailed. Okay. Now, this is Bethel Baptist in Collegeville. Uh, it's an old Board of Equalization photograph, uh, but I put it in because if you look to the left, you'll see the, the stacks right practically in the backyard of the church. Uh, this, of course, was Fred Shuttlesworth's church and has just quite recently been completely restored and is now a National Historic Landmark. The neighborhood, however, Collegeville, has continued to suffer from the pollution. I think it was from the code plant. Am I right? Yeah. Okay, now, the Ensley Works, this is TCI, which became the Ensley Works of the United States Steel Company. It looks pretty clean in this one. Okay, Catherine. A little split smoke here coming along, different view. But there you go. There's, there's the reality of what it was a lot of the time. Next. And there's the housing right underneath it. Can you feature growing up in, a, in a, such a dirty atmosphere? Okay, go ahead. Now, this is fun. Um, and it doesn't really show on the screen. This is a ball game at Brickwood in 1929. But all around the horizon, you, you can barely see it. It's, a, it's like a haze, pinkish haze. Do you all, does anybody, I do, I'm old enough to remember it was still there in the early 60s. You remember? 76, there you go. And then I guess they didn't, they didn't clean it up until the government told them to. <laughs> okay, oh, now you recognize this, of course. This is Five Point South. Um, shot, probably, oh, well, it had to have been shot by Mr. Kiley from the uh, Terrace Court Apartments. That's the only thing that was tall enough in those days. But uh, looking toward the city, but you can't see the city. And that was, that was just perfectly the norm. Okay, Kevin. Now this is 20th Street Hill, looking again toward the city, which is likewise invisible. This is the spot uh, to the right is where Southern Research began to occupy some of the old manses. And uh, the left, of course, is now largely UEB and uh, Five Point South. But, but in the, this, this shot is from, I think, 08, something like that. Okay. 
okay, these are just random pictures of smoke generating. These are, uh, this is Sipsy again, I think. The Coke ovens. And these are slag heaps. Uh, an unidentified site, but they were all over the county and all the mining camps. Just, they just piled up the slag. I'm not even sure. Where is Sipsy? It's... What? Oh, is it? Is it? Yeah, it's up. You've heard of the Sipsy wilderness, of course. Uh, I presume it's the same area, but uh, the whole the whole area was just filthy. Okay, now. Ha! <laughs> you recognize that? You recognize that fellow? That um, This this is. Dates probably from the teens. He was in his mid-thirties when he came to Birmingham. Uh, and he came because, not because he was unhappy in Montgomery, he was not. But he felt that the city was so full of vitality and action and terrific need. And he was right, of course. And then, as most of you know, he ran into uh, a heresy hunter at South Holland. Um, which we know more about him now, but I'll spare you. See me later. <laughs> he was not local, you'd be glad to know. James Bowron is blamed universally for being the instigator of all the trouble. He really wasn't. Uh, the guy was from, guess where? Texas. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? James Bowron? <laughs> well, I'm exonerating him, you know. <laughs> Richard, Richard Bowron used to say all the time, my grandfather did that, you know. Well, he was, he was involved, but he was not the instigator. This, this guy was a, a premillennialist. He had already tormented two or three ministers prior to Dr. Edmonds uh, before he got there. And ultimately, you know the story, it's fabulous. Um, but the independent church was founded in 15. By the 20s, um, okay, I think the next, go to, go to the next one, Catherine. By the, by the early 20s, this is all of the church that had been finished. This is the Miller and Martin Sunday School one, um, which was finished and occupied in 22, at which point the congregation left uh, Temple Emmanuel and moved into its own church. And just about that time, uh, there's the story of uh, Dr. Edmonds uh, being on the train. Back in those days, people did business on the train. It was wonderful. Uh, he ran into a local philanthropist, not not a member of the congregation, but a, a well-known man who had what he called a struggle hotels. Uh, and and not flea bags either. I think one of them might have been the Drake. In, in, is that Chicago? And, uh, really good hotels. His name was Robert R. Meyer. There he is. He is, for some reason, uh, widely um, thought to be Jewish, uh, maybe because of his name, but he was a Baptist. But he was a known philanthropist, and Dr. Edmonds uh, said to him, would you like to spend some money on something that would basically leave your name in whites for the rest of eternity and that would really be good for the for the city? And of course, Mr. Barnes said, "What would you like? What do you need?" And at that point, um, 
Dr. Edmund said, I'll get back with you. <laughs> and he went back to the congregation, he went to local physicians, he went to the social service agencies, and he went to um, various philanthropic groups and asked what, what is needed, what would be the biggest help to the, to the people. And the answer came back of, of somewhere where the children could get fresh air. Uh, and I found out just the other day, talking to a friend of mine, that this was going on all over the country. The, uh, because there had been some, they called them fresh air camps, that were turning up in the Catskills and outside of New York and places like that. You know, every place was head dirty here, basically. Uh, in a, a industrial city, and uh, so this was a this was a trend. But but Dr. Edmonds identified it very um, openly and carefully, and then he went back to Mr. Ma, uh, to Mr. Meyer and told him, and he said that sounds like a good idea. Now what I'm going to do at this point, um, I'm, I'm vain enough. I, I I told Tom I went back to my 1985, 85 thesis, just to see. And I read about the farm, I said, this is fine, this got everything that you'll have time to say today. So if you will indulge me, I'm going to read some of it. Uh, so hold on, I've got to switch glasses again. <laughs> and they're on the floor. While she's switching, um, there, there's some pictures that we can show later on, but um, realize at that time we still had child labor, and like, and there are pictures from um, the Hines, right? um, uh, from Lewis Hine uh, came there and documented child labor, and so in uh, those that those Avondale Mill plants, children younger than 12 years old were working the cotton um, mills, and um, there the conditions were uh, pretty horrific. So childhood for a lot of uh, kids at that time was uh, not really childhood, it was um, uh, labor. And um, so the, there began to be concern, there was a, a good deal of concern about how these children were coming up and what they, how they'd turn out to be. So that's kind of the precursor of this. Exactly, thank you, Tom. You probably said it in fewer words than I would have managed. Um, so here we go. The fresh air farm The fresh air farm is another subject that invites its own complete thesis. You're spared. Its, its history and programs have been recorded in a publication of the church Mission on the Mountain, 1923 to 1983. This was Oscar Duggar's wonderful history of the, of the farm. Uh, is Alice or Mary Reeves here? I, I wanted to it's Oscar Duggar was their father, and uh, I had a picture of him somewhere, and naturally couldn't find it when the time came. But anyway, it was a huge service to the church, and I, I relied on it very heavily to um, to do this. To do this, okay. It is the remarkable place of this institution and the churches in the city's life, and its position as an almost perfect embodiment of the social gospel's goals that make it especially important to this particular history of independent Presbyterian. The farm is also remarkable because it has been in so continuous and unchanging a ministry. It has expanded, it has modernized, it has begun programs and discontinued others as the times demanded. But for over, I said 50, now it's 100. 
It has maintained and fulfilled its goals of inspiration and service to the city's children. Um, when Henry, what Henry Edmonds wanted and what has been realized was for the lives of the children who spent summers at the farm to be touched in a way that could change, change them forever. The farm was to make them healthy, to give them hope, to show them a life beyond their winter windows, and to give them the love and faith to sustain them through difficult times. Love and faith that could then be given back to the world in later years. If the social gospel's primary belief was that society must be changed through the changed lives of individuals, then no better ministry to accomplish this purpose could exist than a camp on the mountain that turned hungry and frightened children into laughing and confident ones. One, uh, one thing I read the, in the course of all this again was that some children were so undernourished that when they saw food offered to them, they burst into tears. I mean, it wrenches, it wrings your heart, it does, to, to, to know what they went through. Now, here we go with the, the credits for who did what. <coughs> Dr. Edmonds, knowing very well the, the great competence of women, <laughs> if he hadn't known it, his wife would have made sure he found it out right soon because she was very competent herself. Uh, he went to the women's organization to manage the farm, which they readily took on. Uh, the women's organization ran the farm and partially supplied funds for it. In this, they were assisted by the social service department and by the addition to the farm committee of several physicians in the congregation. Uh, I think the first one was Elwood Ballard, a name I'm not terribly familiar with. Uh, I know he was a local, a local physician and one of the original founding members of the church. Um, let's see. The method of selecting campers was, and still is, I guess, Dale, Dale might straighten me out on this, to solicit applications on behalf of the children from the local social, social service agencies and to choose the neediest cases. Children chosen were given complete physical examinations at children's hospital and special camp clinics before the sessions began, and they were provided medical attention if necessary. It was standard, get this, it was standard to do about a hundred tonsillectomies every year. <laughs> um, all performed free of charge by those of the doctors in the congregation who were the farm's medical staff. Direct superintendents of the farm was in the hands of nurses uh, until 1928 when O. May Jones, a social worker, became superintendent. Miss Jones was to remain in this position until 1944 and was also to assume responsibility for year-round social work called winter work, connected with the campers and their families. Um, let me see, I've got to skip some of this wonderful stuff because we don't have time. Um, throughout the 1920s, requests for places at the farm multiplied and by an expansion of staff and facilities, the church tried to keep up with the demand. The general schedule was to have three groups of children, up to a hundred at a time, each of which spent three weeks to a month at the farm. The children were put into groups according to their particular difficulties and needs. By the summer of 1929, economic conditions were becoming straightened, so that so the pressure on the farm's resources and facilities was particularly strong. Probably no description of the effect of the times on the children could be more convincing than the following one from the report of the Children's Fresh Air Camp, they were still calling it, uh, of the summer of 1929. This is a quote from that report. 
During the summer months at camp, we entertained 327 children. The first group was made up mostly of children who have been victims of misfortune during the great economic situation, etc. Children whose parents have never had to call on outside agencies for help. The second group could be characterized as the hungriest, thinnest lot. It was not an unusual sight, here it is, it was not an unusual sight during the first few days of the camp to have children cry at the sight of food. The third group was the, was the most difficult type, mentally and physically. Um, on the occasion of the church's 25th anniversary in 1940, Birmingham Community Chess Director Florence Adams told the congregation, quote, probably no one in Birmingham is in a better position than I to know what the privilege of being able to send children on the borderline of tuberculosis from malnutrition to this camp has meant to the social agencies of this city, particularly the Department of Public Welfare, which is in no wise responsible for the fact that its relief grants are inadequate. Government support for social services, as you know, had to be wrung out of people for many, many years. Private contributions to the life of the farm gave the children what public resources could not afford. The generosity toward the farm, not only of the members of the congregation, but of the city at large, has been one of the truly entrancing things about its history. The report of the 1929, of 1929 gives a full list of contributions to the farm for that year other than money. Now this is fun. These include volunteer labor to build a sleeping porch, log cabin, and wading pool. The medical work done by the doctors, including no fewer than 108 tonsillectomies performed by Dr. William Staggers. Vegetables for the garden plot, sponsored by the men's Bible class, and I think they're still at it, aren't they? Doing the gardening up there. And 21 dozen sunsuits made by the women's organization so that the children could get as much sun on their little bodies as possible. They were, so many of them. Oh, Dale was telling us just a few minutes ago that tuberculosis was so rampant that it weakened the children's spines. And so they would, they would get, um, they would get uh, sort of hunchbacked and um, very, very brittle. So they, they, they did the sunsuits, little sunsuits for the girls and just shorts for the boys and let them get some sun. Um, it's, it, it's, it's quite a story. Uh, the lack of sunlight in their lives is attested to in another part of this report concerning some children kept longer at the farm who were going through a series of bone operations and in need of sun baths and special diet to make this possible. And among the many contributions from other individuals and businesses, and so these are some names you'll recognize, I think, were use of a truck from the Edwards Motor Company, 109 pounds of meat for Mrs. Lou Lazarus, six gallons of ice cream a week for Mr. R.S. Waite. Oh, neighbors. Uh, 30 play suits for Mrs. C.E. Ireland, a Shetland pony from Mr. S.Y. Caldwell, 24 pairs of overalls from the Burger Phillips Company, and at the bottom of the list, but not least of this collection, one Jersey cow from Mr. Theodore Swan. <laughs> so the whole city was involved. Uh, and the Perrys, who, whose farm was, was uh, bought by Mr. Meyer for them, were so entranced for the whole thing that over the years they were also very generous. And by the time the farm was deeded to the church, it came to about 36 acres, I think. Yeah. 
Um, on that subject, I, it, it never really occurred to me that we as a congregation at that point were building a church and launching this ministry right. and, um, and then growing this ministry and growing this church. And so the, the scale of ambition and enthusiasm at that point, um, it, I'd love to see us match it as Kevin Kevin has uh, challenged us to do. So. Well, the fact is they were having a ball doing it. It started in 1915, and they had committees to help everybody. Uh, it was, they really were having a fabulous time. But you also have to remember that the congregation was full of very wealthy men. Uh, and Dr. Herman said, I'm not going to be a woman's preacher. He loved women, don't misunderstand this. He said, I'm going after the men, because he knew that's where the money and the power and the influence in the city were. And so that's what he did. When I was defending this, one of my professors, my sweet Bobby, Bobby Wilson, I don't know if any of you remember Bobby, but uh, he said, well, it all sounds pretty good, but basically it's just a defense, but on a small scale, a very unfair economic system. And I said, I thought to myself, well, he's right. But Blaine Brownell, who has an association with us, and he was the chairman of the department at the time, said, oh, yeah, but you so seldom see a thesis dealing with such a happy, <laughs> a happy situation. So um, that was the end of that argument that I wasn't being very um, data-based or serious about it because it was an unfair economic system. Well, we all know that. And we also know, of course, that it was, it was only for white children in those days. So, you know, there are things, you, if you want to be a revisionist, you can, but I don't happen to be one of those. Um, <clears throat> the social service department knew that the children at the farm would find it hard to keep up over the winter months the standards and habits of health and life that they had attained over the summer unless their families were somewhat, somehow kept up with by the church. Activities from October to the following June, then, were directed at what the 1929 report to the congregation called family rebuilding. The winter work has served 130 families that previous year, and to give the congregation some more vivid idea of what this service entailed, the Social Service Department's report provided a concrete example of one family which is being reprinted here for the same reason. <clears throat> Quote, five children in family, three of which we had at the camp. Father so near blind he was unable to work, another almost bedridden for need, mother, almost bedridden for need of physical care and food, children undernourished, and no clothes for school. We had the father's eyes operated on and secured work for him. Had the mother treated at Hillman, and she was restored sufficiently to take in sewing, and we helped her secure a machine. Through the Parent Teachers Association, the children had been furnished hot lunches at school and extra milk for the most undernourished of the three. All of this, and what is the result today? Father's eyes well enough, and he has steady work. Mother well enough to take in sewing, only one child slightly underweight, and all three children promoted at school, and the whole family going regularly to church and Sunday school. Just one of the many families they Okay, I have to skip some stuff here. Um, Omay Jones was, I think, the, the earliest long-term, Dale can corroborate this, because she knows who ran the farm 
from what year to what year. Uh, but um, she, she, had, she was a lovely woman and loved those children. She said, um, she was quoted by Marvin in uh, The Bearing Day is Not Gone. Um, Perhaps the richest years of my life were spent in the employ of Independent Presbyterian Church as manager of the children's fresh air farm on Shades Mountain. During these years, 28 to 44, some 4,000 children were our precious guests, little underweight, undernourished ones in need of body, mind, and soul rebuilding. What a golden privilege. What a challenge to keep up one's best for no one could live with children and fail to catch their loyalty, their purity, their faith, their love, their forgiveness, their funny little unaffected appealing naturalness. That's pretty romantic, but I don't. I hope children are still that way. Um, and I'm getting on toward the end. I'm running out of time because um, I wanted to, to read one more thing. Um, the, 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 the files are full of letters from campers who have come back to camp, either just to visit, to revisit old times, to bring their own children, to get married. Uh, there's, there's so much feeling in the letters that, that some of them wrote from the earliest days, and I know Felix got one, uh, in 1984, which I'm going to read to you here, an excerpt from it. Uh, in closing, I'm going to change it around because it, it, I think, makes a lovely ending to, uh, to, and then we can show the last two or three slides, which were, as a matter of fact, Catherine, go on and show them, uh, because there's, there's the garden. We'll go down and this one. Uh, this, there's the garden patch. This, this one's published. Next one. The playground, and this is where you can really see the little sunsets. Uh, and everybody looks so happy, don't they? They don't look like starving children. They look happy and and, um, and well fed. And at that point, they were. Um, in closing, I would like to share something that Miss Jones had them sing at the Fresh Air Farm. These words express the sentiments of Bud, her brother and me, and we thank you and all who have gone before for your part in helping to mold the lives of two children who otherwise would have spent summers on the hot streets of Birmingham, but most of all, who would have missed the many blessings. And the song is the Fresh Air Farm version of When I Grow Too Old to Dream. This place will live in my heart. Thank you.